At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you have been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we have been walking through a series called Mission Own. This is a series that is walking us through 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13. Today we are in the sixth part of that series, and it is actually our last message, not only in this series, but also in our study of 2 Corinthians. If you've been with us at Wildwood throughout 2023, you know that we have been walking through a number of different series, beginning back in January, walking through verse by verse the book of 2 Corinthians. And we have seen inside of this book that Jesus is on mission, and he invites us to participate with him on this mission. He has prepared us for it. He has briefed us on it. He is inviting us to endure on this mission throughout our lives, to participate on this mission even financially, and to personally own this mission as we walk with Christ together and live for his glory. We have seen this over the last number of weeks. And and today, as we wrap up our study of 2 Corinthians, I thought it would be helpful to look again at a central verse in this great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And that is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, segments of verses 14 through 17, where I think Paul reflects on the mission that he understands Christ is offering to him. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the mission that Christ is on, and he, by his grace, invites us to participate in. So really, the question that Paul is inviting to the church in Corinth and by application to us today is, is, simply, is simply this. This is our mission. Will we choose to accept it? Will we choose to accept it? Well, when we think about accepting this mission that we have been invited to participate in with Christ, we might say something like this. Who is sufficient? For these things. I mean, certainly not me. Christ making his appeal through me? Are you kidding? We, we hesitate at that notion. Because, honestly, it feels like an impossible mission, does it not? It feels like mission impossible. However, we remember something great. With God, all things are possible. Amen? So this mission that we have been invited on is a mission that actually Jesus has has guaranteed. He says that I'll be with you always to the end of the age as we participate in the mission that he has invited us to join him on. And so, friends, we have an opportunity to follow him on this mission. Today we're going to see one final installment of what that looks like as we look at verses 11 through 14 at the end of chapter 13. So would you take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 11. I want to read these verses to us, and then after I read them, I'll back up and make a couple of observations from them today before we celebrate the Lord's table together at the end of our time. The Apostle Paul is concluding this letter he wrote to his friends in Corinth, and he says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, in these few verses today, I want us to see two things. The first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to see our role in unity. As Paul is ending this letter, he is issuing a call to unity in the church in Corinth. And so by looking at these verses, we might receive a call to unity as well. What is our role in this? Well, in order for us to understand that, again, we need to remember the context. What is happening in this section? If you have been with us the last few weeks, this is a review. If you have not been here with us, then this will kind of set the stage for what we're going to see. You see, the Apostle Paul had a relationship with this church in Corinth. He had planted this church. He had been in ministry with them. But the church in Corinth, in Paul's absence, had become confused. They had begun to follow some who Paul uh, almost mockingly called the super apostles. Some who were claiming superiority over Paul, but in fact were leading people away from Christ. And and Paul writes to them so that they might clarify who they were to listen to. They were to listen to Paul and those who were proclaiming the true gospel and not these fake apostles. We're reminded of this in verse 19 where, where Paul says, I've been defending myself to you. And so we see this is the context. A second thing that we see in this context is that Paul is challenging the church in Corinth over their toleration of sins of division. The church in Corinth, because of these competing voices, had begun to splinter and point fingers at one another, dividing unnecessarily. And so Paul writes them and tells them to knock it off, knock off the quarreling and the jealousy and the anger and the hostility and the slander and the gossip, the conceit and the disorder. But not only that, but the Apostle Paul also calls them to to stop their toleration of sensual sins. Apparently in the church in Corinth, they also were participating in sins of impurity, of sexual immorality, and of sensuality. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth to invite them to listen to him and to knock off these sins of division and sensual sins. And verse 7 of chapter 13 that we saw last Sunday kind of summarizes this well when he says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Paul wants them to repent, to do a 180, to stop heading away from Christ and to begin walking towards him. And so this is the context of these letters. And after issuing this, this excuse me, after issuing this strong uh, challenge to them, Paul now begins to transition to his conclusion of the letter. And we see in this conclusion a a set of commands. When we look at verse 11 in particular, Paul is going to give a number of commands, almost in staccato fashion. In in the original language, all these commands are almost just one word that he, he lines up one after the other to challenge the church in Corinth. What are those commands? Well, they are rejoice, aim, comfort, agree, and to live at peace. Now, what do each of these commands really mean? Well, I think it's important for us to look at them. So let's, let's break it down. The first I want to look at is this command for rejoice. Now, this word rejoice is, is, a, is a good translation. If you're looking at the ESV Bible, which I'm reading from, it translates this word Rejoice, And that is a, an accurate translation of that word. However, the word rejoice, when used in this context, 
also was an idiom in the first century world. It was an idiom, meaning it, it meant something else. Though it actually said rejoice, it could also mean farewell, goodbye. And it was a, a, a way that you would say goodbye when you were leaving on good terms. Paul is ending this letter, and he is saying, we have reason to rejoice, but I'm getting ready to tell you goodbye. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Finally, brothers, farewell. If, you, if you're looking at a King James Version, for instance, that is how they translate this word. I think it's the preferred translation of the word. We might think of it in, in the Hebrew language. We, we're familiar with the word shalom. Shalom translated means peace. But you would use the word shalom both as a greeting, shalom, hello, peace to you, and a goodbye, shalom, see you later. In the same way, this word rejoice is used in a similar idiomatic fashion as a way of saying goodbye in the Greek language when you're leaving on good terms. So Paul is leaving them as a friend. What's the second command? Well, the second command is really a set of two commands to aim for restoration and to comfort one another. Now, again, this is the translation of the ESV. But humbly, I would say that I think there's a problem with this translation. And the problem has to do with the voice. Um, the, the voice that is actually used here is a passive voice, not an active voice. If something is in the active voice, it would be translated similar to this. You are to aim for restoration. You're to do something. You're to comfort one another. You're to go about and comfort each other. But this is not in the active voice. This is in the passive voice. And since it's in the passive voice, I actually prefer two different translations, the, the first of which a translation that is in the New American Standard, and the second is the marginal reading from the ESV. I'm sorry to, to do all this. I don't normally break it down this way, but I think it's helpful for us to see what is actually happening here in these words. And so we might translate this, instead of aiming for uh, restoration, instead say, be made complete. Be made complete. And, and instead of saying, comfort one another, say, listen to my appeal, or be comforted. What was Paul doing at the end of this letter? What he was saying was, he says, allow my admonition to you to have its effect Paul says, listen to what I am saying. Be comforted by my words and actually change your behavior so that your net might be mended. That the hole in the boat that is the sin of the Corinthian church might be patched so that you might be made whole and complete for the mission that I have called you to. This is effectively what Paul is saying to his friends in Corinth. Now, after issuing that call, he, he continues, and, and he gives them this command to agree with one another. Now, I'm not going to change the words on this one. I think this is a good translation, to agree with one another. Now, what does he mean, agree with one another? He's not saying that they would think the same about everything, that they would all like the same sports teams, that they would all be wearing crimson and cream on the second Saturday in October and not burnt orange and white. That's not what he's doing. He's not here talking about having the same mind on everything. What he is saying here is that on the essential matters of the faith, that they would allow the truth of God to unite them in one mind. That they would think the same about Christ, 
that they would think the same about the nature of the church and of salvation, that they would think the same about their creator God. Paul is is writing to them. He says, I know that there are divisions. I know that you all are, are scattered about on a number of issues, but on the things that are most important, might your minds be centered together in a common denominator of truth. That's what Paul was saying here. And he goes on and says that they would live at peace. Again, I think this is a great translation. What what is he saying about living at peace? Well, he's reminding them not to be at war with one another. There there was a war of words, a war of, of closed circles that had broken out among the Corinthian church where people were saying, you can't be in our small group and you can't be a part of our group and we have the right truth and you have the wrong truth and there was division that was breaking out inside of this church. Paul says, knock it off. Knock off the divisions over secondary matters inside of the church in Corinth. Instead, make every effort to preserve peace in the bond of the Spirit, as he would say to the Ephesian church. He says something very similar here to the Corinthians. After making that statement, he he goes on to say, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, what was he saying here? The God of love and peace will be with you. I think what Paul was getting at was something like this. The city of Corinth, the majority of them were unbelievers. The majority of them were not Christians. Some of them were Jewish, some of them were pagan, some of them practiced temple prostitution and all kinds of things. There were lots of people in that city. But the Corinthians were to follow Christ, the the Christian Corinthians were to follow Christ in such a way that the nature of their God would be visible to those around them. So that as they followed Christ, that something might be known about their God, not only to each other, but also to the world around them. And what Paul was saying was, if you keep fighting, no one's going to believe that you're following a God of peace. And if you keep slandering and quarreling and backbiting, no one's going to believe you're a God of love. If, if you keep just expressing every kind of sensual behavior that feels right to you, that it goes against what the Word of God says, then no one's going to believe that our God has a specific love that is greater than the love of this world. What, what Paul was, was getting at here was he says that, that as they follow Christ, that there would be a sense of the God of love and peace that would become apparent to those around them. Now, after this string of commands in verse 11, the Apostle Paul goes on and makes a couple of other comments in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, he says, he says this. He says, they are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, remember, this is in, within the context of a call for unity. What Paul was saying was, let the unity and the familial connection that you have within the church show up in the way that you treat one another. That's basically what what he was getting at here. Let your affection that is in your heart be made visible about your love for the saints. Friends, inside of the church, uh, you might have picked up on this. We call each other brother and sister. Now, we might not all do that. You might be like, well, I've never done that, or no one's ever said that to me. But, But here's what we mean. If you've ever heard it said, brother or sister inside the church, this is what it means. It means that we have one father, a heavenly father. 
And that in him, regardless of our earthly families, we have been united inside of God's household. And so that inside of God's household, we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? And and what he's saying here is he says, hey, this familial connection that you have, let that kind of a familial connection show up in the way that we greet one another. Culturally, in in the first century, an appropriate expression of this was the, the kiss on the cheek. You might have seen that in different cultures around the world. It was not sensual in any way. It was, it was holy. But it was a familial type connection that was to be displayed inside of the church. When we think about this inside of our world today, may, may we greet one another warmly like we would family so that we might reveal to the world the close connection that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, all the saints greet you. What was he saying here? Well, Paul's writing this from Macedonia. He's writing this probably from Philippi. And he says, all the Christians in Philippi and Thessalonica and this region up here, Berea, they are sending their greetings to you. What was he saying? He's reminding them that not only do they have unity inside of their little fellowship, but also they're a part of a huge family of believers who exist around the world. Paul ends this with a call to unity. Now, what is our role in unity? How do we take those commands that Paul just gave to the Corinthians, and how do we begin to connect them to our lives today? Well, a few thoughts. The first thing I would say is that we might repent when confronted. I actually would... you know, I write this message earlier in the week. Here I am on Sunday. Before Sunday, I'm like, I, I need to make an extra point about this. Not just repent when confronted. Re- repent when convicted. That can happen before anybody ever confronts you. But, but if, if God is, is pointing out in you behavior that needs to change by gr- the grace of God and the power of the Spirit and the forgiveness that is found in Christ, repent, turn, and begin to follow Christ. What does that have to do with unity? Well, the unity of the church is affected when sin is being tolerated in our midst. That's what Paul's point was to the Corinthians. Paul says, your toleration of these sins of division and your toleration of these sensual sins has torn a hole in your net so that you are no longer effective for the mission that I have called you to. Friends, we we need to turn from our sin, not just to protect ourselves from things, but also to preserve the testimony of the body of Christ in Norman. And so, repent when convicted. Repent, certainly, when confronted. Next thing, maintain unity in essentials. Maintain unity in essentials. Again, the church, by definition, is a diverse group. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation ultimately are invited to trust in Christ and be a part of the church. There are many things that we will do differently. There are many areas where we will think differently. But on the essentials of the faith, may we find unity and encouragement and comfort and togetherness. Third, live at peace and not war with one another, especially inside of the church. Live at peace and not war. This doesn't mean that there's not conflict. Paul challenged sin when he saw it. 
But what it means is that we approach that conflict as brothers or sisters in the Lord, not as those trying to tear one another apart. Live at peace and not war with one another. Fourth, reveal your God with your life. Reveal your God with your life. If, if you were to think about your life and the decisions you make and, and when what you're exporting, what's on the other side of you, let me just ask the question, what would someone assume is your God? Or how would they assume your God was like? What would they assume that your God was like based on their experience of you? Paul says when we are following God and living in obedience that people would know that our God is a God of peace and a God of love. Friends, what would others come to know about God by looking at your life? What would others come to know about God by looking at the life of our church? Next, make visible your love for the saints. Make visible your love for the saints. I think this is the command of a holy kiss. Make visible your familial connection between believers. What would it look like for us to make visible our love for the saints? Well, it certainly would look like warm greetings when we see one another, things that are appropriate inside of our culture. It would also look like things like, like assisting our brothers and sisters in Christ when we're able to meet a need that they have. That's what we do for family. Friends, that we would be willing to come around and make visible our love for our fellow believers. Paul encourages them in this direction in verse 12. And we need to remember that our family is huge. We need to remember that our family is huge. You know, when we talk about, uh, you, you might have seen the, the war that is breaking out in the Middle East right now, um, the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, I, my, my first thought when I see that happen is a friend that I have who lives in Tel Aviv. And I reached out to him yesterday to see if he was okay. But even beyond that, friends, I'm reminded that my family is bigger than just a friend that I have, but there is a body of Christ in that area, and there are missionaries that we partner with that are serving in the Middle East, etc. And and I just am reminded that I've got family that's there. You have family that is there, and it changes the way we think about the world. That we might look at the things that are happening around the world with an understanding that, that, that a portion of the body of Christ is going to be there to provide testimony to Christ to point others to him in the midst of it. That ought to enhance the way we pray about the things that we read about in the paper or watch on television, that Christ might be known, that his glory might shine bright. Friends, we have a role in unity. Paul reminds them of that in these few verses. But there's a second thing that we need to see here. And that second thing is this, God's gifts for unity. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God that when he calls us to something, he doesn't call us to it and then say good luck. We have a God who, who calls us to, to things. He calls us to his holy standard. He calls us in the direction of unity, and then he provides resources to help make it a reality. Amen? Friends, we see this in verse 14. In verse 14, he says this. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, what do you notice about this? There's something pretty obvious to see here. What is it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a triune, a trinity-styled benediction that Paul gives to this letter. 
When, when Paul is here talking about unity and repentance and being on mission, he basically is saying, God has given us some serious resources to make this happen. How serious? How much? Well, he's backed it up with all of who he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, what's fascinating is normally when, when the Trinity is referenced in places in the New Testament, it is referenced in that order, Father, Son, Spirit. But how is this ordered? In a different order, right? It grabs our attention. Son, Father, Spirit. So why does he order it this way? Well, I, I think he orders it that way because that is the, the order in which we have been ushered into relationship with God. It's kind of the order with which this happens. It began with Christ's gracious pursuit of us that was motivated by the Father that leads to unity and fellowship with the Spirit. Now, let's break each of these three down in terms of these gifts that have been given. The first I want to look at is the grace of our Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the grace of our Lord Jesus? Well, we might remember back to what we saw in chapter 8 of this very letter, where Paul talked about the grace of our Lord Jesus. He says that same phrase again. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? What is the gift that he has given us? He says, that though he was rich, how rich? Extremely rich. The Son of God, sitting on high. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Is he here talking about having wads of cash in our pockets? No, he's talking about something far more enduring and far greater. He's talking about Jesus not clinging to his place in heaven but humbling himself to come and die on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven and God's gracious righteousness and the power of the Spirit might be extended to us. That's how rich we are in Christ. And it's by his grace. It's not because we earned it. It's because he chose to give it to us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when we think about what has enabled unity, what has enabled repentance, what has enabled transformation in our lives, it is because God acted first. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not approach repentance. We do not approach any aspect of unity on our own. It comes on the other side of the grace of God. May the grace of Jesus be at the front of our minds as we relate to God and to each other. Second, the love of God. The love of God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Friends, God loves us. God loves you. And it motivated him. 
to send his son to come and to die on the cross as a payment for your sins. What a gift. What a gift. We are not in relationship with God because we have lived a perfect life. It's by his grace. And and God has given us that grace, not because we somehow have caught his eye in our performance, but simply because he loves us and has pursued us in Christ. Friends, may the love of God not just be something that affects our relationship with him, but in light of his love for us, may it affect the way that we relate to one another. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What, what is Paul talking about here? Well, if we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to reside where? In our lives, in our, in our very hearts. This takes people who are very different and gives us something foundational that we have in common. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Friends, we have something amazing in common. And that is that the Holy Spirit of God resides in our hearts. If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, whether that's something you did years ago or something you will do this morning, friends, the Holy Spirit resides in your life. And that makes us brothers and that makes us sisters. And that gives us fellowship not only with God, but with each other. Friends, God has given us something amazing toward repentance and towards unity. He has given us his grace, his love, and his spirit. Now, one last thing to point out, and this is really wonderful. It is for us all. Paul doesn't say this. He doesn't say that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with a select set of you who are in the right small group. That's not what he says. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all of you who are in Christ. This gives us a hope. This gives us unity. This gives us life as a congregation. I love what Paul Barnett says. He summarizes this well. He says, by this prayer, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that their mending does not lie within themselves but with the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the Spirit's fellowship. The grace of Christ removes aggressiveness. The love of God dispels jealousy, while the fellowship created by the Spirit destroys bitterness. As God answers that prayer, the problem so manifest in Corinth and in every troubled church will be overcome. Friends, God has given us gifts for unity. May we remember them now and remember them always. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the just a wonderful opportunity to to open your word and to study it, to see these incredible truths here that remind us of the unity that we have because of your grace and love and the connective power of your spirit. Lord, as we gather here today and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, May we remember 
the oneness that we have in you. And Lord, may it inspire us and encourage us to follow you clearly and completely in line with your truth. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. 